Good evening, church. I was told that my my sermon around 20 minutes or so was probably pretty comfortable, so I should take a few minutes and say hello and introduce myself. So um, I have been here with my wife, Karen, for maybe five or six months now, so you may not even have seen us. We kind of hide over there as close as possible to the parents' room. Um, our family is... Um, Kobe, who's 12, he's been coming to Extreme for um, about a year now. And also our, our son, Benedict, who just turned one on Saturday. So Karen is home where he is hopefully asleep. Um, and so I work, um, I work full-time at Telstra. I'm a, I'm a technical specialist that has nothing to do with your landline, your mobile or your home internet. <laughs> And uh, as well as having the family and working at Telstra, I'm working uh, part-time at Bible College. I'm almost finished my study, and so Pastor Duncan was kind enough to give me a chance to come and share something with you tonight. So let's get started. So we're in the Remarkable series. We're moving through the book of Mark, and the story that I get the privilege of sharing with you tonight certainly falls into that category. It is a remarkable story, and in fact... Of all of the miracles recorded in all four of the gospel accounts, only two of them are recorded in all four books. The resurrection of Jesus and this one. So in order of significance, it appears that the gospel writers felt that this was certainly something that was remarkable. And certainly it was the grandest scale miracle that Jesus performed. Um, And so... It's little wonder that it got recorded in all four accounts. But people people read this story and they kind of go, yeah, yeah, I I know the story. You know, Jesus, he teaches a few people and he heals their sick and and he kind of gives them bread and fish and he feeds everybody. And it's an amazing miracle, yeah, but we know the story, so cool. But Mark, when when he wrote his gospel, um, wanted us to see more than just the miracle. He wanted to answer the question, who is this man? Who is this Jesus that is doing these things? And so tonight we're going to seek to answer that question and we're going to look at three ways in this passage that Mark reveals some of Jesus' deity, some of his identity and what that means for us. So if you've, if you've got your Bibles and you've got them open, keep your finger in that passage in Mark 6 and we're going to make our way through that. So the story picks up where Jesus' apostles have just returned to him from traveling all around the region. He sent them off in groups of two to go and conquer disease and death and demons and do it in his name He gave them that authority and they had been doing that on a grand scale. People were following them from everywhere. They'd been proclaiming the good news and now they've returned. And Jesus, having heard the account of all that they've done and taught, sees that they're weary. And many were still coming and going, it says, and so Jesus calls them away from the crowds. He says, come away to a desolate place. And rest. Jesus knows that the disciples have been ministering and ministering and ministering, and now it was his turn to minister to them. And so here we come across the first of three ways in which we see Jesus putting himself on display. So if 
If you're taking notes, this is point one. Jesus is our rest. Jesus knows what it is to be tired, right? I mean, this is a guy who was on a boat in a storm, a storm that was big enough that it risked capsizing the boat and shipwrecking everybody. And where was Jesus? He was asleep. Like, he knew what it was to be tired. But rest is more than just the act of having a quick nap and feeling better for next time. Has it ever occurred to you that when we're resting, we're actually being like God? God, since the beginning, his design has included rest. After his creative acts, he rested on the seventh day. When he called the Israelites as a people for himself, he set up a system, a calendar with Sabbaths, Sabbath days and Sabbath years to include rest. And not he didn't just do it as a reminder of who he was and what he had done, but also because when we do that, we're actually being like him. And he wanted us to do that. We see right in the start in Genesis 1, 26, that we were made in the image of God, in his likeness. And from that point forward, all the way through the narrative of Scripture, we see that God's design includes our return to that image which was broken at the fall. And so rest is actually part of our God-likeness. David, in, in Psalms, had so many examples of this. Listen to the words of this rest language in Psalm 23. In every line, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Sounds good, doesn't it? And if you follow that pattern through scripture, you eventually get to Jesus, who as God in the flesh knew the disciples' need and had the desire and also the ability to meet it. So this is the first attribute that we see about Jesus that is so wonderful for us to hold on to. All of us know what it is to be tired and in the weariness and busyness of life, Jesus encourages us like he did to the disciples to come to him and rest. And so they get in the boat and it becomes clear at this point just how effective the ministry of the apostles had been and just how much magnetism Jesus had for drawing a crowd. Although the exact location of the town isn't known, commentators suggest to us that the boat sailed eastward across the Sea of Galilee in sight of the, the northern shore and the, the journey took about four miles, about six kilometres. And Mark tells us that people came from all of the cities and towns and they ran on foot ahead of them. Now that running around would have been roughly double. They ran 12 kilometres to get there ahead of the boat. These people had been there as the apostles were proclaiming the kingdom of God. They had seen God at work and they wanted more. And they ran that journey to get there ahead of them. But upon disembarking, how would you have felt if you saw this crowd and your plans for rest were interrupted? You've got to be kidding me. 
<laughs> can't we just can't we just have a quiet meal? Like I know how I would have reacted, but the response of Jesus to this crowd just it illuminates for me why Paul described Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Verse thirty four says when he went ashore he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And Matthew uses a different word. He he says that he welcomed them. You can't fake a reaction like that. Mark didn't say, well, he begrudgingly acknowledged the crowd's presence or he just kind of admitted that they weren't going away. It says that he welcomed them. This is a wonderful, rich word, which means that he, he gladly received them. His heart took them in fully. Jesus' first response is to teach them. Mark doesn't tell us exactly what he taught them, but scholars suggest that it was the Sermon on the Mount and those kind of similar teachings. Um, but he didn't, he didn't simply welcome them because he knew that he could heal a few of their sick and teach them a few important things and then later feed them physically. But he had compassion on them. Verse 34 tells us, because he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. So this is our second point that Mark reveals about Jesus. He is our shepherd. And this is a common attitude of Jesus. We see it all through scripture where Jesus is preaching and walking around the towns, healing and sharing the good news. And he saw people with compassion like sheep without a shepherd. And this is where the gospel writers make all of these hints to things that have happened in the Old Testament all the way through the story of Israel. God and through his prophets describe the people of Israel as sheep without a shepherd. And particularly in Ezekiel, there's a a passage where God, in, in all of Ezekiel chapter 34, God provides this promise where he says, I will send them a shepherd I will send them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them and guide them and be a shepherd over them. And David and his successors are often portrayed from that point, they're often portrayed in Scripture as the the shepherd of God's people. So it's no accident that Matthew actually begins his gospel with a genealogy. He actually describes this is Jesus and connects him all the way back to Abraham. But in the middle... He says, this is Jesus, descended from David. And anybody in that time who was familiar with scripture would have read that passage and gone, Jesus is a descendant of David? Do you know what that might mean? The excitement, the anticipation that that Jesus could finally be Israel's ultimate shepherd would would have been tangible. And all the other thing about this is that through Jewish literature, um, feeding often refers to teaching from the Old Testament. And so we see how Jesus fed the people spiritually before he got to what they thought their need actually was. He knew their needs better than they did. So we're starting to see a picture now of how everything Jesus does reveals more of the Father's love for the people that he calls for himself. We haven't even got to the miracle yet. Jesus is already this loving, 
nurturing shepherd who cares deeply for every sheep. You know why the image of a shepherd is such a powerful one? Sheep can't do anything. They need a shepherd to give them food, to show them water, to clean them, to guide them, to protect them. Do you know sheep can't even turn themselves upright if they fall flat on their back? Their little legs are just... They can't, they can't do anything. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. We're all just sheep. And we're prone to wander. Jesus sees these people and his heart embraces them. Once again, it would be great to follow this theme of of shepherd all the way through scripture, but Tom doesn't allow for that tonight. So a a, a quick project, a quick progress check. Jesus is our shepherd and Jesus is our rest. And so now if if you've got the passage then, we'll read from verse 35. It says, and when it grew late, his disciples came and said, this is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages so they can buy something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? The disciples' suggestion that Jesus dismissed the crowd so they can go buy something to eat is, you know, it's it's legitimate. It's a fair and considerate thing to say. Except for the fact that Jesus has already demonstrated many, many times that he's more than capable of handling this situation, of meeting people's needs, healing the sick, removing unclean spirits, calming a storm. And let's not forget the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. Jesus can meet these needs, but Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. What was that, Jesus? Look, look where we are. Look, there's no food here. Imagine how much it would cost. Where would we even go to find that quantity of food? And even if we could go and find someone and buy it, how would we bring it back here? This is a good point to pause and actually mention that Matthew's account tells us that there were 500 men besides women and children. And so commentators estimate conservatively that if there were 500 men, there were probably up to at least 500 women, or 5,000, I'm sorry, and then probably at least two or three children per family. So scholars estimate conservatively there could have been up to 20,000 people at this gathering. Jesus is standing in front of half of Suncorp Stadium going, you feed them. And Jesus knows that the disciples don't have any food and he knows they don't have any money because back in verse 8 he told them, go out and preach and don't take any with you. So he, he knows what the disciples have. And Jesus sent the disciples out in those pairs to be an extension of his ministry, to be his hands and feet to the people and this is no different to him. But the disciples look at the command 
from what they have to offer. And they forget one very important thing. They're standing in the presence of Jesus, the creative, miracle-working God. How often do we do the very same thing? How often do we look at seemingly impossible tasks and go, we don't have the money for this? We don't have the resources? I, just, I don't see how, we, how, how this is going to be done. The disciples thought that too. But then in verse 38 and following, Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish that were given to him and miraculously provides for this massive crowd in an act of such creation that it could only have come from God himself. Here, the verb he gave, um, it's in the Greek imperfect tense. It means that it happened in the past, but that it's ongoing. Jesus got the fish and the bread and he gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he gave. And the disciples, they just kept coming back for more. Mark, well, actually, none of the gospel writers tell us exactly how this happened, but how amazing would that, like, there's literally just bread coming out of his hands or something. Like, we don't know how it happened, but he just kept on giving it until everyone ate. The massive nature of this miracle reveals the greatness of Jesus over everyone who's ever performed any miracle since. And there are accounts like this in Scripture. Back in 1 Kings, Elijah says to a woman who has no food and is preparing for her and her son to die from starvation, he looks at her and he says, This day the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day of the Lord sends rain. And the woman went away and her and her household ate for many days, just like God had promised. And over in two kings, Elisha fed 100 men with 20 loaves of barley and they ate and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. They're big miracles. But the only miracle that surpasses this one that Jesus has done is God providing manna in the wilderness for the Israelites. So here we find the third way in which Jesus puts himself and proving that he is God on display. So point three, Jesus is our provider. To create food on this scale was just a massive creative miracle. Jehovah Jireh was the name that the Israelites gave to God in these circumstances, the Lord, our provider. And Jesus is this God come in the flesh. But it's important not to forget verse 42 in this because it's not insignificant in telling the story of the miracle. It says that all ate and all were satisfied. It indicates not only that everyone was given food, it wasn't a, a token piece of bread to keep them going until an actual meal. Everyone ate and everyone was satisfied. They were full. Everyone ate to the max and even the leftovers were vastly more than the original supply of food. This is provision from Jesus. And so what do we take away from this? I want to offer three conclusions. First, we look at Jesus being our rest. Ministry is tiring. Being a parent is tiring. Being a student is tiring. 
Life is tiring. But Jesus understands the need for rest and rejuvenation. And so he tells the crowds in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you tired? Would you love, like the disciples, to have Jesus minister to you for a moment? Jesus invites you to come to him tonight. Come, sit and be encouraged by scripture. Be encouraged by recounting stories like this. Be refreshed by the spirit as you meditate on this promise which is meant for you. And encounter the one of whom David said, he restores my soul. Second, Jesus is our shepherd. At this point, could also be called, don't forget you're a sheep. We must remember the role of the shepherd as the one who protects and nurtures and guides and feeds, but we also need to remember that we're sheep. And if we're not careful, we'll wander off on our own and not know where to go, not be properly fed, or worse, fall into danger. It's only through our trust and dependence on the shepherd and in listening to his voice and obeying his call that we remain safely in the flock. So let's remember to listen for the shepherd's voice. And last, Jesus is our provider. I don't know if it occurred to you in the telling of that story in all four Gospels, but when the crowd had journeyed from all the surrounding cities to Jesus and they stood or sat in the hot sun and listened to Jesus teach for hours and they were weary and hungry and Jesus provides this miracle meal for them, I don't read about anyone saying, oh, no thanks Jesus, I'm fine, I got this. No, it says all ate and all were satisfied. Jesus reveals himself as the only one who can truly abundantly satisfy first with bread to fill their stomachs, but in the same chapter where John tells this story, Jesus actually declares of himself, I am the bread of life, and all who come to me will never hunger. What was Jesus' point? Was Jesus talking about the ultimate welfare state where in the place where he's king there'll just be free food for everybody all the time? The Israelites, they would have loved that. But Jesus is referring to a deeper hunger, a spiritual hunger. And Jesus is the only one who can meet that need. Sure, he can meet our physical needs too. But more than that, he alone can satisfy the deepest need of every human being who ever lived or will live. In calling himself the bread of life, Jesus declared that those who come to him will find in him the fullness of everything that they were ever made to desire. He is their perfect, total provision and nothing and no one will ever be more satisfying. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our shepherd. And Jesus is our provider. Will you pray with me? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We who don't deserve it and yet you looked on us and had compassion Jesus we come to you as the one in whom we can find rest in the weariness and the busyness of life 
we can come to you and have peace, rejuvenation. We find in you the strength that we need. We thank you for coming to earth and dying for us and rising again. We thank you for sending your spirit. What a precious gift to lead and to guide us, the spirit of Christ. We thank you that you didn't simply leave us on our own to our own devices to wander off and go astray, but that you gave us your spirit and your word to show us the way. So we thank you for your guidance and we pray that we would more and more learn to sit and rest and hear your voice, the good shepherd. We thank you for your provision for us. We thank you that we can trust you with our circumstances, our resources, every aspect of our life because you not only know exactly what we need when we need it, but you you have the ability to provide it. And so we rest confident in the knowledge that we are held safe in the hands of a God who loves us and cares for us and nurtures us and guides us and provides for everything that we need, that you know our needs better than we know them ourselves. And so we're encouraged by your word to us tonight. We ask that by your spirit you would continue to lead us and guide us and that we would work with your spirit in this process to find the time to sit in those green pastures by still waters to have our soul restored to listen to the shepherd and to know his voice we thank you for these things we give you glory in Jesus name Amen